I'll bring you another message from the book of Joel this morning. Um, we'll pick up some things in Joel chapter 2. Uh, and then possibly next week we will conclude uh, with Joel chapter 3. Uh, don't know. I thought maybe this Sunday would be the last message on, on this one. Uh, but why rush it? We're not going anywhere, right? But in Joel chapter 2, uh, there are three things that I would like to uh, make notice of, uh, three things that are going to occur uh, in this chapter. Now, I want to say, first off, I do realize that the overall emphasis and intent Joel, in the whole book of Joel is calling the nation of Israel to repentance. A severity of that or a seriousness of that uh, is seen in the passage that we're going to read today. Uh, it's Joel chapter 2 and verse 16. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar, and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? The seriousness that is laid out here is that Joel is calling a public assembly of repentance of everybody. Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, and let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. The happiest day that you could think about, let it stop. The event that you have planned for, for months on end, the money that you have spent on it, set it aside. Returning to the Lord and having His presence is more important than anything else in this world. Let the wedding stop, is what Joel is saying. Bridegroom come forth, bride come forth, let them all even meet at the altar and let them all weep between the porch and the altar and say, Lord, spare thy people. Uh, you know, that, and that is, that's not only a prayer for us right now, uh, but we pray that even for the Christians in the Ukraine, as we mentioned earlier, uh, that God would uphold them and that the wicked enemy coming in would not rule over them and question them and say, where is now their God? Pray for them that their faith fail not, maybe even in this situation. But this is a, this is a serious call. Let the bridegroom come forth, let the bride come forth. Let them weep and pray before the Lord. This is a very specific command by Joel at this day. Um, however, I'm not reading this in Joel's day. I'm reading it now. These, if we were to focus on the seriousness of the call to repentance, what I've just said would be applicable. You to me till Christ comes back. But if we stand back 
and we observe this chapter, there are three things that are going to occur in this chapter that are reasons to rejoice and make the soul glad. The three things are the bridegroom will go forth of his chamber, the bride will come out of her closet, and in verse 28 it says, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. If we pause for a moment and look at this from a gospel dispensation perspective, this is actually a powerful and encouraging passage. A bridegroom is coming. His bride is being revealed. And the Spirit of God is being poured out. This is a glimpse into the coming of the Messiah. This is a glimpse of, are you listening, of the joy that happens when Jesus arrives. Joy when Jesus arrives. Um, you have the bride. You have the bridegroom. You have the pouring out of the Spirit upon all flesh. And the all flesh that is, is defined for you in this passage. He says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Who all is going to get the blessing of the pouring out of the spirit? Everybody. You say, why is that so important? Because at this time, in Old Testament days, who had the oracles of God? Who, who had the word of God? Just the Jews. Just Israel had it. What's going to happen on the day of Pentecost? The Spirit is going to come down. And the Spirit is actually going to undo what God did at the Tower of Babel. Remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? They were all of one nation, all of one tongue. And they wanted to build this great tower up to the heavens. And God said, I will go down and I'll confound their language. I'll confound them. And the tower ended up, it stopped, which ought to be of a little bit of encouragement to us. I know the tower got built some. I don't know how much of the tower got built. But you can read in Genesis, they did start the process. They did get a ways down the road. But before they could conclude what they wanted, God intervened, God interfered, and God stopped their wicked ways. So in this life, it can get dark. In this life, the wicked can rise up. And in this life, the wicked can create plans. But God can still intervene, interfere, and overrule the wickedness of men's hearts. But there he confounded the language and they stopped building because they couldn't understand one another. Well, now you come to the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and something miraculous occurs. The Spirit of God is poured out and the Spirit immediately begins making interpretation between the Jews of that day and the foreigners who were in the towns. 
the young men, the old men, the boys and the girls, the servants and the handmaids. This is not about the rich. This is not about the poor. This is not about the black, the white, the male, or the female. In God's eyes, that doesn't matter. This is about the pouring out of His Spirit. But the pouring out of His Spirit is going to happen when? After those days. What days? After the bridegroom comes forth and the bride comes out of her chamber. Uh, I'll also give you a little hint here. Uh, after the bridegroom comes out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet, there is then a period when he calls, he says, let the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Just hold on to that thought real quick. First off, let's address the issue of the bridegroom. Turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 This is probably a very familiar verse to many of us who have dealt with or studied the creation of the world in connection to the Bible and Christianity. Psalm 19, verse 1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. Um, we look at the creation around us, we've, and, and we see that there's just too much perfection in the way that the, the, the world exists. The size of the planets, the spacing from the sun, all those sorts of things, the uh, difference of the stars one from another, we recognize that there's, there's too much perfection. There's too much intent to say that this was accident. He says here that the heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 4, and in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. The tabernacle means a dwelling place. In the heavens, God has placed a dwelling place for the sun. And then it goes on. Now let's read this. Verse 5 which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The sun that is placed out there in space to shine upon this great earth is used as a metaphor here. It's used as a bridegroom to come forth to run a great race. Every morning when you wake up, if you wake up early enough and dark enough, you can face the east and you can see the rising of the sun and you can get the glimpse of that first light of day and you could stand outside and you could, you could feel the first rays of heat from the sun upon this earth and you see him rising whether you want him to or not. You see him going across the earth whether you want him to or not and you see him disappearing in the west whether you want him to or not. He does what he wants to do. He works his will. He does what he is supposed to do. The sun rises every day. It passes across us every day. And it sets every day. And there's this little period between the setting of the sun and the rising of the sun of darkness and nighttime. 
before he rises again tomorrow and does exactly the same thing. It's amazing that the individual that created this world could remind us every day in something so simple as the rising and setting of the sun to remember Christ came once and regardless of how dark it gets, he will rise again and come again when he's ready. And he is set forth as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. Christ came forth the first time to run a race. He came forth to run a race against sin, death, and hell. It was his job to come to this earth and fulfill all the law to a jot and to a tittle and to please God for us. He ran a race by himself. There was no team effort. There was no help with him. And, you know, you've seen races before. Perhaps when you were in high school, you may have ran track yourself. Uh, there are individual races and there are team races. There are team races where there's, uh, uh, you know, relays where one man starts running and he hands off the baton to the second person on the team and he runs for a while and then he hands the baton off to someone else and they run and the team is only as strong as its weakest link and hopefully they can all work together and cross the finish line ahead of everybody else. That ain't Christ. God did not hand the baton to the patriarchs and say, hand this off to the prophets and some point hand this off to Christ and Christ hand it off to his church and hopefully we can all get together and save a few souls. That's not the Christ we're talking about. This is a man that came forth by himself and ran a race by himself. And because of his victory, the team gets the trophy. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He came forth, he ran the race, he ran it in perfection, and did exactly what he was supposed to do. Notice in Isaiah 60, 61, we also get another description of this bridegroom. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. He says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me, clothed, clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments. And as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. For as the earth bringeth forth her bud, and as the garden causeth the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Um, I guess it's worth pausing right here before we read our next text to, to ask you a question. Uh, do Western, Western weddings, do they present the proper biblical pattern of a wedding. They do not. Western weddings are kind of pathetic when you compare them to the, to the Bible, and this is why. In the Western wedding, what happens? We all gather, 
And shortly before everything begins, the groom comes waddling out of some back closet somewhere and kind of stands up here and shifts from one leg to the other while everybody waits for the big attraction. The big attraction is what? When the back doors open and the very pretty, pretty bride comes down the aisle. And we all stand and sing, here comes the bride. While this slobbering fool stands up here sweating, not knowing, not having the foggiest idea what he's fixing to get into. That is not the biblical pattern. The biblical pattern was that the bridegroom came out of his grand chamber. And the bride came out of her closet. That that bride standing there means absolutely nothing if she's not accompanied by the bridegroom. And really in this text, he shows here, he says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation and He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Essentially what you have is you have a, 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 a bride standing at the altar in sackcloth. You have a bride standing at the altar in uh, you know, holy, ragged clothes. And you have the bridegroom who comes down the middle of the aisle and takes off his white cape of righteousness and clothes the bride so that you don't see the rags anymore. That's the picture that's laid out in Scripture. That the important thing is not, here comes the bride. The great song is, here comes the groom. And here he comes. Friends, we're not waiting for the appearing of the church. The church is waiting for the appearing of Christ their, their bridegroom. That's what we're looking for. Here he says, the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Drop down in chapter 62 and verse 5. For as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as a bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. Let the bridegroom come out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. In John chapter 2, we find the beginning of miracles that Jesus did uh, at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, someone may question and ask, I wonder what Jesus was like growing up as a boy. I wonder if he walked in and my, his mama had given him chores to do housework and he sat there in the chair while the broom swept itself and the dishes washed themselves and the clothes folded themselves. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. He was not a child magician. He was not a surprise genie in the box. He did not do his first miracle until a wedding in Cana of Galilee when he began his earthly ministry at 30 years of age. In around AD 30, he appears at this wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the problem that has arisen here is they have run out of wine. And apparently from what I understand in that day, that is a very embarrassing thing to do. Too many people showed up, I guess, or they didn't plan far enough ahead or whatnot, or maybe they didn't have enough money to, to uh, buy the wine that they needed, whatever. We'll just make it up as we go along. I don't know what the family's problem was, but I do know that the family had a problem solver in their midst. 
And they implore Jesus saying they have no wine. And he instructs them to fill up some pots here. As a matter of fact, I believe he says uh, there's six water pots. There were set there six water pots of stone. This is chapter 2 and verse 6 after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. Several things that you can learn from this. The bridegroom at this wedding gets the credit for what Jesus did. Wouldn't you be offended? If someone took and got credit for a job that you performed at work? You ever had a team project at work? You ever had a team project in school? And there's always that one kid who did nothing but pick his nose, and yet he got the same credit as everybody else? Man. Sometimes they even get more credit than everybody else. That's insulting, isn't it? You can agree to that. That is insulting. Because it's insulting to say that I've saved anybody for Jesus. That insults the very work of Christ. To tell us that the work of Christ was nothing until my hand got involved in it. No, the reality is that the work of Christ is everything. The work of Christ is what made the difference. We, as the servants who stand there and drew out the water that had been turned into wine, have the special privilege to really know where salvation comes from. Do you know what Jesus is also showing here? He's showing that indeed He is the great bridegroom of the wedding. The phrase that says, uh, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. We may, we may be delighted in what the preacher has to say. And I hope when you leave here today, I've said something that means something to you. I hope that I've said something you can remember. And I hope when you go away from here today, you will say it's been good to be in the house of the Lord. But when you get to heaven, you're going to realize how poor and pathetic this wine is. And you're going to look at Jesus and you're going to say, Thou hast kept the best wine until now. When you see him face to face and you hear preaching as it ought to be preached and you hear singing by the saints in heaven's pure choir, singing as it ought to be sung, you're going to realize he's kept the best wine until now. Now wasn't that, a, that was also a promise in Joel. He said, I will restore unto you the oil and the wine and the new wine at a time coming. He had told his disciples, he said, you know, when he instituted the Last Supper, he said, take you and drink all of this. He says, but I'll not drink of it until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. There's coming a better day than the day in which we set in right now. This bridegroom stands here. John the Baptist would say of Jesus Christ concerning him being this great bridegroom in John chapter 3 and verse 29. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. 
Well, no kidding, right? He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy therefore is fulfilled. What did John the Baptist have the privilege of essentially being? The best man at the wedding. He got to introduce the bridegroom. Behold the Lamb of God. He got to see the coming Christ. And he got to witness the individual who would establish his church here on this earth. The one who would say, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, the church was not created, constituted, or founded on the day of Pentecost. The church of Christ was already in existence. It began with John the Baptist. It began with John the Baptist and uh, 12 little men called apostles. It was not constituted on the day of Pentecost. It was christened and launched on the day of Pentecost out into the world. It was a ship that was already built. It was a ship that was sitting in port in harbor and on the day of Pentecost, something magnificent, supernatural happened to that church. It didn't begin, but it began its journey into the world at Pentecost. In uh, Matthew chapter 9, I'd like you to notice something here that uh, kind of ties in with what we're talking about this morning. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 14. Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we, the Pharisees, fast oft, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Um. <clears throat> In other words, do you ever get afraid of the dark in the middle of the day? <laughs> Ain't no darkness to be afraid of. Uh, here's a little clue for you. If you're ever home and you don't like being alone, a lot of people don't like being alone. If you're ever home late at night and you just you feel lonely, you don't like being alone, perhaps your husband's out of town or something, uh, <clears throat> here's a solution to that problem. Put on a scary movie and turn off all the lights. And it won't be long for you won't feel like you're alone anymore. Uh, every creak, every crack, and every bump, you'll think there's ten people in the house ready to come hunt you down. Uh, I'm never afraid of the dark in the middle of the day because there is no darkness. But there comes a time at night when there's a bump or a bang or a slam and you wake up thinking, what was that? Well, Jesus says there's coming a time when the bridegroom is going away. He's going to be crucified. And I bet you there was some sorrow at that time when that bridegroom was crucified. But three days later, he arose again. He appeared to uh, above uh, 500 people at that time. And later, uh, in the first chapter of Acts, was uh, taken into a cloud into heaven. And he's been there ever since. Now was the time for fasting and weeping and mourning. Now was the time that we fast and weep for uh, Christians around the globe that are being persecuted for uh, administrations here 
or in Canada, wherever they might be, that are uh, uh, showing their true colors of uh, tyranny and uh, totalitarianism, things of that nature. Now is the time for weeping and fasting and mourning. But there is going to come a rising of the sun again. Notice what he says, though, here. I want to kind of continue on this. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. We realize he was taken out of this world at one point. Verse 16, no man putteth a new piece, or putteth a piece of new cloth, unto an old garment, for that which is put into fill it taketh up the garment, and the rent is made worse. Neither do men put wine into old bottles, else the bottles break. And the wine runneth out, and the bottles perish, but they put new wine into new bottles, and both are preserved. He's speaking here also of the transition between the Old Testament worship and New Testament worship. The bridegroom has come, Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of every sacrifice that was ever made uh, from Abel unto the last, uh, last man, uh, Barakai, uh, uh, Zacharias, the son of Barakias, whom, whom the Jews slew between the, the altar and the temple. The very last sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament at the time, he's the fulfillment of every one of them. And by the way, Paul talked in the, in the Hebrew letter about those who serve the temple or tabernacle now. Jesus Christ was crucified. And yet because many in the Jewish nation did not consider him the Messiah, they kept right on with temple worship. So here's Paul standing out here preaching the gospel of the finished work of Christ and right in front of him is priests, Levites, slaughtering lambs day and night. It was something continued on. Christ said, I'm doing away with that. And we're not going to take the sacrifice of Christ and overlay it and make it a part of Old Testament worship. Completely changing. Sacrifices are no longer outward sacrifices. They're inward sacrifices. The instruments to use to praise God are no longer outward physical instruments used to praise God. They're inward instruments. Lips of praise, lips of sacrifices, lifting up our voices unto Him. If you take the sacrifice of Christ and overlay it and try and include it in Mosaic law, it'll tear the whole thing apart. Because He's a new garment. He's a new piece on an old garment. And it will completely destroy it. When Jesus said upon this rock, I will build my church. He said the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, Paul also writes to us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself for it. I'm sure that this is a familiar verse to most of us in here. Who did Christ give himself for? He gave himself for uh, the whole world and whosoever will listen. Not what the text says. I mean, it sounds real nice. But it's not what the text says. The text says that Christ loved the church. And gave himself for it. He gave himself for it. And he's also going to sanctify and cleanse it. And that he's going to, in verse 27, that he might present it to himself a glorious church. Listen, not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing. Spots or blemishes? Wrinkles or what? Signs of old age? Uh, signs that you got more skin and not enough property to cover? Is that kind of what a wrinkle is? Uh, you say that's, that's, that's kind of preposterous. No, I think this is, I think this word is used exactly right here. If there's a wrinkle, you, you put your bed sheet out and you don't flatten it out right and there's a little wrinkle. Do you think when you get to heaven, there's going to be an empty seat here, an empty seat there, empty seat maybe back here in the back? I mean, there was enough blood to cover them. They just didn't agree and they just didn't come along. No, there won't be any such wrinkle or spot or blemish in the church in heaven's pure world. The blood that was shed by Christ will cover everyone it was intended to cover. And everyone that was covered by the blood of Christ will take their place at the king's table on the great day of the wedding feast. After he comes forth, he brings his church. His church is launched into this world on the day of Pentecost. Let's turn over there for a moment and look at what occurred in Acts chapter 2. It's amazing to me the mental gymnastics that people go through in attempting to read and explain God's Word. There are several passages in the Old Testament that are quoted in the New Testament. Most of them are just a verse or half a verse or a little portion of verses. Uh, for example, though, in the text that we're reading from in Joel chapter 2, uh, the last verse of, of chapter 2, he says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. That verse is quoted twice in the New Testament, once by Peter here in Acts 2 and once by Paul in Acts 10. And both of the times that they quote it, they say, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, they make a change from the term delivered to being saved, not because the term delivered is improper, but to let you know that deliverance or that salvation is deliverance. It's the purpose for that. But in this text that Joel quotes, or Joel writes in Joel 2, and that Peter quotes, Peter quotes almost word for word about six verses in this. We're not taking one verse. We're not taking half a verse. Or four, we're taking six verses. And I'd like for you to notice how this begins. Acts chapter 2, verse 16. Peter says, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Uh, if I was to come up here on the blackboard, and I was to come up here and I write in front of you 2 plus 2 equals 4, I would say, this is that. I would not say, this 4 is going to be 2 plus 2. I would not say that this 2 plus 2 is like 4. I would say, this is that. You say, well, big deal. That's, that's what the text says. This is that. 
Peter is saying that that prophecy that Joel made in Joel 2 is revealed right now. You simple, you simple little sheep get that, right? The vast majority of the world does not get this. The vast majority of the world, when they come to this point, they say, what Peter is saying is this is going to be like what Joel was talking about in the last day when it comes. It's the dumbest explanation I've ever heard. It really is, because that's not what Peter says. Peter doesn't say this is going to be like something. He doesn't say it's similar to something. He doesn't say it's copying something. He says this is that. I'm about to blow a gasket just imagining how preposterous it is people trying to explain away what is occurring. This is not like something. Because the majority of people that come across this, they say, won't it be great in the last and final day, right before Christ comes, all these great things are going to happen. Well, I'm no expert on prophecy. It may very well be that before Jesus comes back the second time, right there at the end, we may see great healings, crutches will fall away, and the blind will go away. I may have to stand up and say I am wrong about my explanation. I won't be disappointed, but I will be wrong. kind of wish Jesus Himself, though, had said that. Instead, Jesus said, before I come, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation against nation, perplexing of nations, overabounding problems and troubles and trials amongst people. That's what I'm expecting. I'm expecting this world to descend into chaos because mortal men don't know how to live together. Back up a little bit. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They all who? The 120 that are listed uh, at the end of chapter 1. At the end of Christ's three years, he had 120 disciples. You say, well, that's far more than we've got today. But you're talking about the perfect Son of God. You're talking about an individual who never spoke an ill word. You're talking about a man who never had to apologize for anything he ever preached. I need to apologize for all my preaching. Every bit of it. I'm sure it has offended multitudes and has stumped to high heaven. And the fact that the Bible has endured such poor preaching down through the centuries is evidence it's the inspired Word of God. The fact that people will continue to turn to it when preachers malign it and mutilate it is an act of the grace of God. But there were 120 that were gathered there that day. And they were all with one accord in one place. So that ought to tell you how important it is for the congregations to gather together. They were all together. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Now, this is a place where where the Bible can say this is kind of like something. We hear the sound of a rushing mighty wind, but you don't feel the wind. Do you get what the text is saying? There's a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. 
And it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. If you will read through this chapter, you will find out what the Bible means when it says speaking with other tongues. However, I would like for you to notice something here. The phrase that is used in the world around us is not that we speak with other tongues, but that we speak in tongues. Right? Wherever you go, they're going to say, we speak in tongues, we speak in tongues, we speak in tongues. That ain't what the Scripture said. I know it ain't, ain't a word, but that ain't wrong. They do not say we speak in tongues. They say we speak with tongues. Good news. The Bible explains what it's talking about. I don't have to explain this to you. Listen. And there were dwelling, verse 5, and there were dwelling at Jerusalem, Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. All right? How many people are there? whole bunch of people, right? Now, when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, we got another clarification of this. When he said they're speaking with other tongues, they're not talking out of their head. They're not doing that. The men that are gathered there do not speak the same verbal tongue language. What's happening? The Holy Spirit has gotten involved. And He is making immediate, instantaneous interpretation. They were all amazed. Verse 7. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Philia and Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So what are we talking about here? We are talking about the Apostle Peter standing up on the day of Pentecost in his Galilean dialect, preaching to Ethiopians, preaching to the French, preaching to the Spanish, preaching to whoever else is sitting out there, and each man is hearing this man speak 40 languages at one time. Because the Holy Spirit is making specific, immediate interpretation. This is not hard to understand. It's really not. It's hard to accept. It's not hard to understand if you read the Scripture for what the Scripture says. He says, these men are not drunk. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes out and he lays out here 
and it shall come to pass in the last days. Now, when you come to that phrase, when you come to that phrase, he comes to the last days. That's where a lot of people get tripped up. And say it's, it, you know, last days, the very, the very last days before Christ comes back. The Apostle John told us in his epistles, he says, brethren, it is the last days. What does that mean to us as the church? Well, before I get done, you're going to realize I believe in something here. I'm going to believe that the Bible says that sin was upon the whole human race from Adam to Moses. I believe it says that in Romans chapter 5. However, it's going to say there that there is no fault with those where there is no law. However, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even on those who had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. They didn't do the same thing Adam did, but they died nonetheless. The Bible also is going to tell you that the law and the prophets were until John. Well, who's law and the prophets? That's Moses. The law and the prophets were until John, John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of heaven is preached and every man presseth into it. There was a time from Adam to Moses where there was no law. There was a time from Moses to John where they lived by the law. And there was a time when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, came and fulfilled the law on your behalf. And there were changes all down the road. Adam to Moses, they had no formal worship. Moses, they had the Ten Commandments. That's what guided Israel. You had the, temp- uh, the tabernacle and eventually the temple. Christ came. You had the end of the Mosaic Age, end of the sacrifices, end of all that by Jesus Christ. We now live under the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ's finished work day. You know what's going to happen the next change? Christ comes back and delivers up the kingdom and we go home. It's the last change. There's nothing else that's happening. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said when He comes back, He will deliver up the kingdom to God the Father. That's the next change. That's it. Brethren, this is the last days. We've been in the last days since Christ was resurrected and went back home. The next major change is the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead from the graves and the calling forth of the saints that are still alive to be with Him forever. I, I think a lot of people... Well, there was a reason in December that I, I preached the message discovering God. I think it is true that the greatest... Uh, journey or the greatest task or the greatest effort that faces us is moving from knowing the doctrine about God to knowing the person of God. I think this is the greatest journey that we will ever face in this life is truly knowing who God is. And when I look at the world around me, I don't, I don't dare say that God can't work in miraculous ways. I wouldn't dare say that. I think there's a lot of show in the world around us, though. Because I think people are desperate to see God.
think his people are desperate to meet him in some ways. I know that there are some who don't care. I know. They, they come, they sit in church, they're entertained, and they leave. I know, there's, I know there's that group. But I know that there's a group who come, they desperately want to see God. They desperately want to be in his presence. And, and we all have to be careful about this. Jesus said that an, adult, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And you may ask, well, what was the whole purpose in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and all those signs that were done in the book of Acts? Um, they, they were a sign unto the Jewish nation. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians uh, that the Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. The whole purpose in the pouring out of the Spirit and the walking of the Spirit with the church through the book of Acts was a sign to the Jewish nation that God had left that Old Testament form of worship and we got something different here, something better here. Um, and by the way, if you think that the book of Acts is a pattern for the church, I challenge you. I challenge you to read the book of Acts and see how many times what happens changes. Now, I'll give you an example of that. In Acts 2, it said that they were all together in one place. The Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak with other tongues, Right? At the end of that, that uh, sermon, there in Acts 2, about verse 38, Peter then looks at all those Jews and proselytes that are there and all, all those men, and he says, Repent and, and, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. He has just uh, condemned the Jewish nation for their sacrifice and their murder of Christ the Messiah. And you as a Jewish nation need to repent of what you've done to the Messiah. Repent. And be baptized, Acts 2.38, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You see how that works? Acts 2.38 says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You say, why have you read this like this? Get the picture. Repent, right? Be baptized, right? And receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's what the text says, right? Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, Peter goes down to the house of a man named Cornelius. And this is what happens here. Peter begins to give this long speech starting in verse 34 where it says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said. He gives everything that's listed here, 34, all the way down to verse 44. Are you listening? Are you with me? Acts 10.44, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word and of the circumcision which believed were astonished and as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. So while Peter spoke, the Holy Ghost falls on those Gentiles that are there. You with me? What's the first thing that happens to the Gentiles? The Holy Spirit falls out on them. For they heard them, this is verse 46, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? The pattern is different. The Holy Ghost has fallen. They have received the gift of the Holy Ghost, which is not eternal life. The gift of the Holy Ghost in this context is spiritual blessings. And after they receive the Holy Ghost, 
They are then commanded to be baptized. You see, the pattern is different. Because the book of Acts is not a blueprint. The book of Acts is a transition period of the church. God didn't give signs to the Gentiles. God gave signs to the Jews. The last thing that we want to look at here is in the book of 1 Corinthians. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. And it begins by saying that the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.20 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I think it's important that he lists the very first fruit of the Spirit as love. If somebody wants to jump up and down on, on Sunday morning, shout hallelujahs and raise their hands and praise the Lord, that's all well and good. If somebody wants to claim that the Holy Spirit has fallen upon them and they're filled with the Spirit, that's all well and good. The very first fruit of the Spirit is love. So if you're going to sit there and hallelujah Christ and jump up and down and motion motion A and all this other kind of stuff, but walk out the building and have hatred and harbor indignation towards your brother, something's wrong. If you want to see the Spirit of God working in your life, it may not necessarily be in physical miracles like healing the blind, healing the lame, healing the sick. We might want to ask ourselves, why would we want that? Why do we want God to heal those amongst us? Why would we want God to heal ourselves? Is it because we don't want to suffer? We don't want them to suffer? Or do we want the glory of God to be shown? There's a difference between wanting to be healed because I don't want to suffer and wanting to be healed because I want the glory of God to be shown. And I don't think that we have the ability in our depraved nature to sort that out. But notice what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. Even if, even if we could say that the speaking of tongues was some special language that only you and God knew. Because you do, you do hear this a lot that unless you're, unless you may have been baptized in water, but unless you get the baptism of the Spirit, you're still not saved. Has anybody ever heard that? Can I get a witness on that? A few of you have heard it. Here's what Paul says. 13 verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not what? Charity. I am become as, tink as a sounding brass and as a tinkling cymbal. If you fast forward to chapter 14, Paul says in verse 19, he says, Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding, that by my voice I might teach others than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. The purpose for us being here this morning is to not have some supernatural experience for ourselves. We're here in a collective agreement. 
And when I speak, when you pray, when we sing, we do so not to the edifying of ourselves, we do so to the edifying of the body of Christ. If we leave here today and say, well, that preacher sure enjoyed what he had to say, I don't understand any of it. We have failed. If we just uh, want to preach uh, uh, just to get up uh, and uh, say something uh, that sounds like uh, what it used to sound like uh, back in the old day and get all excited and sing, and some of y'all look really confused right now. Some of us have sat through some of that stuff. And if I sound like what you used to hear, it kind of gives you an idea this is a learned trait. Because all of a sudden you're going to magically get in the pulpit and you're going to be filled with the Spirit of God right now. You mean to tell me you're not filled with the Spirit of God any other time of the day? I'm not sure I want to be around you then. You tell me the Spirit of God doesn't reside with you except between 11 and 12 on Sunday morning or once a day or once a week. You know, that, that's crazy stuff. It benefits you. I'm glad you enjoy it. Doesn't do anything for anybody else. The purpose for us being here is for Christ. Not ourselves. Not anybody else. And we cannot allow our personal experience to overrule what the Bible says. Your personal experience is not to contradict the Bible. Your personal experience is to go with the Bible. And when you find your experience in the Bible, that makes the Bible real. And sometimes that's the way it is. You'll have an experience. You'll read about it later in the Bible and you say, oh, that's where that came from. Or you may read about something in the Bible and later on you'll experience and you say, oh, that's why that happened. That's what the Bible is supposed to be. But it's not a book that we set down and put aside and then one day our feelings and our personal experiences take over and we go by that. A lot of these psychobabble people out here helping people get in touch with their feelings don't realize is that's why you're in trouble. You got in touch with your feelings and did like did what you felt like doing, and that's why you're in trouble. We need to get in touch with God and do what God tells us to do. See, we, we live in a great time right now. We live in a great time where we can look back at the sacrifice of Christ and see what He has fulfilled and what He has restored unto us. And we can look forward. We can walk in the Spirit. Love toward each other, fellow man, Christ Himself. I thank you for your wonderful and patient attention.